Hello and welcome to The Last Week on Earth with your hosts Odessa Primus and Michael Coran. Today we are welcoming back Sebastian Hallensleben to talk about the new perceptions of the EU, the imprecision of the Commission's regulation on AI, the level of technological understanding amongst EU commissioners, and the challenges that poses. Enjoy, share, and subscribe. What has happened in the last week that caught your interest or that you think might be interesting for our listeners? Well, so it's something that is probably quite obscure, actually, but that happened in Europe and that will um, influence Europe quite a bit. Some, some people will be aware that the European Commission is uh, working on the regulation of artificial intelligence. But what people are not so aware of is that the regulation is actually quite imprecise. And uh, many of the details and the ways to achieve and implement regulation are set by standards in a completely different way. And last week was actually the official beginning of the engagement between the policymakers at the European Union and the standardization community to try and uh, fill in those details. So as I say, quite obscure, but it will have a significant um, impact on the way that we handle that particular piece of technology in Europe. And uh, from my perspective, it's, it's relevant because I'm, I'm chairing uh, European AI standardization. And uh, so I'm the one who has to forge consensus. And uh, there are some very animated discussions how broad that consensus needs to be, how to pull in uh, civil society, how to pull in consumer interests, trade union interests. It's, it's, it's the start of a very interesting weeks and months ahead in trying to forge something that everyone can be happy with. If you don't mind, I would I would stick with this issue a little bit, uh, but, but maybe move it to a little bit more broad or general uh, level. What is your experience with the with the sort of interdisciplinary and intersectoral uh, dialogue within the EU? First, in general, whether you feel there is a tendency to uh, to agree on things or, or to be more, um, uh, you know, more sentry petal in that in that case? Or do you see that that the general trend is that the the parties in the dialogue are actually diverging? Or, you know, what would be the general dynamic in, in, in your perspective? And also, if you can if you can share with us the the main uh, cleavages or the main breaking points in the dialogue. The trend that we see in uh... European politics is we used to have that um, or we used to think in a left-right spectrum, political spectrum and uh, we used to think that the cleavages can be put into different locations along that spectrum but it seems to me that the more important cleavage is between parties who while having their own interests ultimately strive towards work towards uh, some sort of compromise and parties that don't, typically on the, obviously on the fringes, left and right of the political spectrum. But the, the, the upshot is that the, the, the cleavage between compromise seeking and deliberately compromise avoiding is, is a lot more defining um, than the kind of old-fashioned uh, uh, left-right um, split that, that we maybe grew up with and, and, and got used to in other times. If it's, as, as I said, if it's at all possible, if we move closer to the digital or, or AI agenda and look away from the traditional politics, but looking at how to pull together 
the the interests and ideas coming from NGOs, the corporate sector, the tech developers, the political area in general. Would you see some important trends there, or or even I mean, how do you even manage to to steer these debates? That is something that I cannot really imagine because everyone starts with a completely different set of uh, of arguments of interest. That that must be extremely difficult. Well, in, in the if, if we talk about uh, policy making for for the digital arena. We do have a very, very widely varying level of technical knowledge among policymakers. Uh, so we do have some kind of uh, proverbial nerds in policymaking as well, in particular among kind of parliamentarians in the European Parliament. But we've also got um, a large proportion of people who either have not really any technical background at all, or who only have a passive technical background, i.e. they've read the briefing papers, they've maybe entered some conversations, talked to engineers, but don't have any first-hand experience in terms of having been a programmer, having been some, some sort of IT professional in the past. The, the, the consequence of that is that the um, debates that are being, being had happen on very, very different levels. Um, so If you look at regulation of AI, if you look at the Digital Services Act or the um, Digital Markets Act, it's not only difficult to find common ground uh, per se, but it's also difficult to even have a, a shared level of, of, of conversation. So are we framing it in terms of long-term societal trends? Are we framing it in terms of commercial interests of large platforms? Are we framing it in terms of um, uh, maybe kind of technical opportunity or in terms of sovereignty? And that creates a situation where it's particularly easy for lobby organization or corporate lobbying to, to have an influence because they can act as, as explainers. Okay, well, we, we explain the, the digital world to you and it's impossible to have a truly neutral explanation. It's very, very hard. And obviously a lobbyist isn't paid to provide a neutral explanation but it's always going to have some sort of agenda. It's not only, well, on one hand, it's a, it's a, um, a sovereignty issue, but uh, not so much in this case European digital sovereignty, but more a case of policy-making sovereignty, if that's a good way of putting it. But that then in turn does lead to a European sovereignty issue as well, because a lot of the lobbying happens to happen from uh, corporations from outside Europe. So it's a little, a little bit of uh, both in this case. I think the, the, the conclusions we can we can draw from it, well, one one is, is a short-term conclusion that, that probably need better structures, more advanced structures to produce the knowledge or kind of as far as possible neutral knowledge as a basis for policy making. And the, but the longer-term conclusion has to be that we must find ways of getting more technically and digitally literate people into policy making. Um, not just the passive kind, but actually the hands-on act active kind as well. If I am completely brutally honest, uh, based on our research and also based on the 20 years of past experience post-Lisbon agenda, I see very little hope <laughs> that the EU can get its act together and, and start building foundations that in 20 years we can reach something uh, as a technological Uh, or security, but also economical sovereignty. I I very much agree, and and I like the idea of uh, of having some sort of benchmark goal for the EU. But the conditions and trends do not really point into the direction that we would be able to achieve anything like that in in the next generation or two. What is your take on that? It depends a little bit on 
what we use as the baseline to compare the European Union against. If we use as a baseline the goals, the optimistic goals that, that were, for example, discussed uh, in, in, in Lisbon and, and in later years, then I would definitely agree that the European Union still falls far short and that it's at least doubtful um, if it can ever reach those those uh, kind of more visionary levels. But if we use as the as the baseline the situation in Europe at the end of World War II, and in fact the uh, the history of Europe having had wars somewhere um, for centuries um, before then in all sorts of constellations, whereas since the end of World War II we've had peace, with with the exception of the of the, of the Balkans. Then, however many faults the, the European Union has, it always is a success model. Mm-hmm. And okay. uh, even if it continues crawling rather than, 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 than jumping, it still remains a success model. Even if it doesn't manage to evolve further at all, it's still a success model. And even the status quo is preferable to what was far mm-hmm. preferable to what was before. Mm-hmm. And I think that the um, Russian invasion in Ukraine has been a good reminder that we can't just take for granted that we have peace, that we have stability, that we have prosperity, that we have uh, free trade, but that, that those are things that can get lost quite quickly if there is either an outside force that, that decides to go to war or uh, if indeed uh, people internally take it for granted and forget what it actually takes to keep that in mind. Uh, how can we structure the narrative of more European sovereignty and autonomy while essentially knowing that for the foreseeable future, Europe would probably be much worse off than the United States if the mutual relations deteriorate and, uh, com- you know, coming the midterm elections, coming the presidential elections, uh, the future does not look really good. So where is the temperature going regarding especially transatlantic relations, knowing all the all the massive problems, but also knowing the dependency of Europe on the United States? I wouldn't, I wouldn't dare um, uh, kind of making a precise quantitative statement in terms of so, so such and such percentage of, of decision makers are, are, are thinking such and such a way about transatlantic relationships. What I do uh, see is a certain amount of caution and to some extent uh, paralysis as well. Because no one knows in which direction the United States will jump. And uh, since Trump, all the old certainties around the US having the US being an ally, uh, the US uh, providing certain uh, kind of security uh, guarantees, kind of including Europe under their umbrella, uh, the US uh, being a proponent of free trade, the US uh, promoting kind of liberal de- democracy, all those certainties have come up, have gone out of the window. And uh, no one really knows which direction the U.S. will take in the next few years. And as, as you just said, we've got the midterms coming up. We've got another presidential election coming up. We can't even assume anymore that there'll be any consensus on the election outcome. And uh, it's just as likely that the U.S. descends into some sort of uh, internal chaos as it is that uh, it will uh, go back to the kind of more, more established, more, more, more stable track. And uh, that makes it extremely difficult for Europeans to plan, for European policymakers to, to have some kind of frame, frame of reference. Same incidentally applies to um, Russia. 
there was a relatively broad consensus, at least in middle and, and Western European countries, that it was good to, kind of, of course, be wary of, of Russia, but over time, build deeper and deeper trade relationships and, and kind of keep Russia some, somehow close to Europe. So that has gone obviously out of the window. But again, no one really knows how long the current phase will last, how long um, mm. uh, Putin mm. will stay in power. Mm. I, would, I would say that among policymakers, that, that uncertainty in some of them leads to caution and saying, okay, well, Europe just has to uh, chart uh, its own path. And, uh, and we work towards it, strengthening sovereignty, working towards certain kinds of autonomy, whereas others seem more paralyzed in terms of, well, we're just waiting and hoping that some of that certainty comes back, that we have a stable frame of reference again in which to make our decisions. Because whichever decision you make now, uh, there's a very high chance that in hindsight, you will have been the wrong one. So if Europe pause, I mean, now Europe pause uh, many, many billions into defense spending, if the transatlantic relationship recovers to what it was maybe 10 or 15 years ago, uh, you could say in hindsight, oh, we should have spent those billions in, in different ways, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, or if if it turns out that uh, Russia uh, has a, has a, re- a regime change in the, in the next next year and becomes a friendly neighbor, then uh, people would say, oh, all that that uh, kind of effort to to decouple ourselves from from Russian energy mm-hmm. that was just futile, just unnecessary strain on, on businesses. So. I think that that is the um, that that is the crux, and what I would like to see a little bit, little bit more of is a more um, detailed uh, conversation around sovereignty or around autonomy, um, because it's being discussed in all, all, with with all sorts of meanings. Uh, some people, when they say autonomy, they they mean total autarky. Uh, so if the rest of the world disappears, uh, Europe must still be able to con- continue merrily along. Other people interpret uh, sovereignty more in terms of the geostrategic balance. Uh, so we don't need to be able to do everything ourselves, but other other regions, for example, China, need to be dependent in the same way as we're uh, dependent on China. And so that creates some balance and you have the kind of economic equivalent of mutually assured destruction. And maybe that's enough. I don't know, but that, that, that discussion needs to be needs to happen in a slightly more structured way. I wanted to talk a little bit about the external perceptions of the EU and how they have changed and how they are changing, especially now in in light of everything that's happening globally. What do you think are the changing perceptions of the European Union as an entity? And where do you think it's heading? Where do you think the path is heading to not necessarily what we want it to be, but maybe you can mention if you do have a vision for what the perception of the EU should be globally? But where do you think it's, uh, what, are, what are the main changing factors right now? Um, it's quite interesting to see the perception of the European Union in other multinational organizations. So I'm quite active within the OECD. I'm co-chairing their working group on risk assessment. I'm part of their working party on AI governance. And whenever they talk about the EU, they talk about the EU as if they were talking about the country that charts, charts its own path, that, that is currently developing regulation for, for this and that. And it is not, it is rarely on the agenda that uh, Europe is just a collection of, uh, of, of, of nation states that, that have decided to work closely together. Um, it's, it really, it, it is being talked about as if it was a, was a country in its own right. And I find that actually quite quite encouraging because it tends to cut through the kind of 
internal niggles and bickering and the fact that it's hard to reach consensus and the kind of blockades uh, by countries with their very own agendas and is a good reminder of the strengths and the kind of unity seen from the outside that the European Union has already has already reached. Uh, so that that is that is actually a quite, quite a, maybe a far more positive picture than it looks like from the inside. So do you think maybe it, it wouldn't be decreasing the value of the entity when you don't take into consideration that it's a, a member of sovereign states when one does speak about the EU in the way that you just described? that it doesn't actually carry as much value as if there was a more dis- a powerful distinction of its member states. I would I would actually say that if the EU presents itself as much, much more homogeneous bloc rather than as a, as a collection of member states, it wouldn't make it weaker in the external perception, but it would shrink support internally because there is a large proportion of citizens across Europe who are not comfortable with the United States of Europe or whatever you want to want to call it, and uh, it's it's a fair point to have that discussion on well how do how far do we want to go with European integration and uh, which uh, areas of policy should it actually refer to, and uh, how many decisions do we want to take by majority and how many decisions do we want to uh, take by consensus? So I think talking about the United States of Europe is something that might weaken it internally if it doesn't come or if it doesn't leave the door open or or if it doesn't invite citizens to have those discussions about those trade-offs. And um, back to the the perceptions, externally looking at the EU, what would you say are the main trends in terms of does it look more or does it behave or look more powerful or does it have a bigger stake the development of all the different institutions or even individual technologies companies in europe what would you say are the main most impactful or for you most important perceptions or trends of where the eu is is heading as an entity externally well it depends really on the values and priorities of of who you ask if you ask a dictator somewhere in the world what they think about the European Union, they'll just laugh and say, we're a silly, silly bunch of people bickering all the time and un- unable to take quick and uh, strong decisions. And uh, it's, it's, it's even worse than in an individual country. They, they kind of have added another, another layer of, of bickering on top. And uh, so, so there is no respect. And in some cases, as we see in the case of, of Putin, there is even the, the view that uh, this is an excellent opportunity to uh, create extra division and to kind of peel the European Union apart. But even in the eyes of dictators, apparently there is some strength because otherwise we wouldn't have had, for example, the Russian attempts to support Brexit as a way of weakening the European Union or the uh, attempts to kind of implant narratives that that talk uh, in in disparaging terms about about European uh, institutions. If you ask not a dictator, but if you ask uh, policymakers who value uh, liberal democracy worldwide, they tend to see the European Union as a success model, despite all its kind of shortcomings, but it is a success model. And again, going back to the original point, what is the baseline and what is the alternative, which which would have been decades and centuries of of internal war, which is not not a positive situation in uh, in most people's eyes. 
I wanted to ask you what what did you make of the results and follow up on the of the conference on the future of Europe? Uh, do you feel that this is a format that delivered on its on its promises, or or maybe what went right, what went wrong, and what to do with the results now? Well, I haven't I, I haven't been able to take part, but I've uh, read through the material that uh, I guess I sent around. And I was very impressed by the, well, by both the, the depth and the breadth of the conversation. And I think this is the kind of conversation that you need to have more often and maybe also more prominently. I think that we, we always have that crux. If you, if you have, a, have a high profile discussion, uh, then people go on stage in a particular role with particular points that they need to bring across. And it becomes very difficult to have a fruitful converse, exchange of views. If you keep it, keep it uh, more, more low-key, uh, maybe more on a working level to some extent with people not needing to push a particular position but just taking part in, in, a, in, a, in a genuine exchange, then the, the, the result don't, results don't quite achieve the same visibility or impact. And so I think your approach of starting with the latter and then escalating towards the former uh, through that uh, three-stage process that, that you've mapped out is, is, is quite a good one. So. Um, mm -hmm. Okay. And uh, thank you for that positive reflection. And, and, and I would totally agree with that. Uh, where I am perhaps a little bit more concerned is how the top brass political level approach the results. Uh, and here maybe I'm speaking with um, a information ignorance because uh, I cannot say I, I would be going through all the materials and through all the follow-up, but it, it seemed to me that, that the political level, the, the top political level, sort of picked and chose only very small fractions of the outcomes and, and politicized it heavily, like, like you know, the, the majority voting as opposed to the consensus voting, uh, that this is the, this is the crucial thing that, that was the result. But it's not exactly true. There was not the cru uh, crucial results. Um, what, what was your take on the overall political relation, uh, reflection? In a way, you can't... You You, you can't necessarily win there because if it's if it's uh, if, if if you want everyone to say yep yeah, to, to welcome the results then they are probably not specific enough and if you make them specific then they'll also have some, have some they always have some some uh, opposition but it also strikes me that a lot probably depends on the on, on the timing so if we look at uh, if we consider what what are the priorities of the European Union the top the top political priorities. They are the, the, the priorities set by Ursula von der Leyen when she took office in, in uh, late 2019. And since then, everyone refers to the, to, to the New Green Deal. And everyone refers to uh, sovereignty as, and always going back to, oh, and by the way, the president of the European Commission has set this as the top priority um, agendas and uh, policy makers making. And it seems to me that the, the run-up to such changes is probably the ideal time to insert new thinking into policy making because in the, in the run-up to Ursula von der Leyen uh, taking, uh, taking office I had quite a few conversations with EU officials commission officials who said well there's a new boss coming in and on day one we want her to have our new suggestions on the on, on her desk So, so there was a flurry of activity and, and of thinking in that even though you might think, oh, it's a transition period and not, nothing much is happening because the, the old commission president is out and the new one isn't quite in yet. But that was actually a time when I felt 
it was the, the commission was particularly open to new input, and uh, we have we have smaller kind of smaller equivalents right now. So when the AI Act was being developed again, there was a phase of maybe three quarters of a year or so uh, when when the, the ears of the commission were really really very wide open, and anything that that was inserted into their deliberations at that point was was, was listened to. Whereas if someone comes around with a groundbreaking idea on how to regulate AI right now, when the AI Act is is in, in political negotiations and most of the general direction is set already, well, regardless how good the suggestion, it wouldn't it wouldn't really take any effect or, or it wouldn't it wouldn't take hold uh, because it's it's the wrong it's the wrong time in the process. And I, I wonder whether I mean without knowing. Specifically, what which bits you uh, maybe encountered uh, much less resistance, but it seems to me that sometimes it might just be unfortunate timing. And maybe I was a little bit too overwhelmed by by the reaction precisely at the time when there was this struggle with Hungary over the over the sanctions, and uh, it, it completely merged with the outcomes of the uh, conference. And all the talk was about the majority voting as a way of not having to deal with Hungary. And immediately you would have this 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 non-paper of letter of Denmark, Sweden, Czech Republic, Bulgaria, I believe, Romania, that uh, went two steps ahead and said, we won't, we won't know uh, treaty changes. Uh, and this is obviously not related to the Conference on the Future of Europe per se, but it feels like these structural divisive forces that have been here for the past almost 20 years at the very least resurfaced uh, at the at the worst possible time do you think that that this sort of resurface of the different speed europe or i mean i again i'm very much simplifying what what would have to happen for this to go away or for this to even take on more dynamic if i'm explaining myself correctly Well, in a way, I mean, Vladimir Putin has, has done not just NATO, but also the European Union a great favor uh, by demonstrating the usefulness and necessity of being being part of a strong union of what, whatever kind. I find it quite notable that the relationship between Poland and the European Commission has become very, very much more positive, let's put it that, that, that way, uh, because... Uh, Politicians in Poland were, were apparently recalibrating their priorities and thinking, okay, well, maybe even even though we we dislike many of the things, maybe it is worth uh, engaging in compromising um, with with other European countries. And from 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 that perspective, I think external shocks can be quite useful in a, in a way. Or that's a that's maybe a wrong way of putting it, but there there is there is a silver lining there in, in, in such external shocks. More broadly, though, I think that the European Union needs to have a discussion around its own resilience. We've had that discussion in many countries when it comes to constructing a constitution. So how resilient are political institutions? Do you have a, a kind of balance of power between the kind of executive, legislative, uh, um, and the judiciary? Are those independent? Do you have maybe a centralizing in a federal level? How is it all balanced out? And how resilient is that constitution if a bad actor comes into play? What incentives does it uh, does it set and so on? What, and what would you say, sorry to interrupt, what would you say that resilience and sovereignty means in practice? Well, 
Resilience to me means that, like the European Union, cannot be destroyed from the inside by either specific political, political actors or by one or two countries wanting to deliberately sabotage the functioning of that, of that country or that, or that union. So, so that's what, what resilience means. And I would say that resilience is a key ingredient to, to sovereignty. Because if, if, if you haven't got a resilient political system, uh, it's very, very easy for external um, forces to create divisiveness and to, to weaken you and thus to destroy or to impair your, your sovereignty. But, but, but as I said, I think the discussion around how resilient are European institutions in the face of countries like, like, like Hungary at the moment, or imagine a presidential vote in France would have gone the other way, then we would have a very, very quick big questions mm-hmm. around how could the European Union survive France uh, turning, turning into a very right-wing country. If you were in charge, uh, if you were president of the commission or, or in any other high executive office, what would be the, the agenda for tomorrow that has to change in order for you know more resilience, more let's I would call it benign sovereignty because I'm as, as you might have guessed, I am very careful about all the autonomy and, and sovereignty talks because it, this will have ramifications around the globe, uh, which might come back and uh, kick us in the butt. <laughs> but but anyway, what would be the the first three steps, first three decisions that you know would come to your mind that would point in this direction? But also, what are the obstacles? Because obviously we live in a very non-ideal world. So what would be the obstacles that you would have to overcome internally, externally? And and through this, we would get to the more practical picture of how things can be done or not. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to comment on individual kind of political processes or maybe the finer points of the role of the European Parliament versus the Commission or, or because that, that is a structure that's grown over time. And I wouldn't be qualified to comment on any, any beneficial tweaks on that. But what, what I would put a lot of emphasis on is democratic discourse at a citizen level across Europe. And that sounds a little bit abstract, but we currently have very few fora where people engage with each other as citizens of Europe. We do have a little bit of a kind of European citizens initiatives, which is a, it's a way of bringing things to the attention of the European Parliament. But it's, it's, it's almost like, like a fringe structure. It's, it's not really used very much. And we have to counteract the emergence of the, this attitude that government, be it national or European, is kind of a service provider. You, you, you choose your service provider by voting once every four years and uh, you, you, you pay them through your taxes and then you, you just expect them to deliver whatever your, your, your personal interests are. And we have to go back to the notion that countries, nation states, but also the European Union is something that is being shaped by all citizens. Maybe not all citizens all the time, but in a way, it's it's a shared responsibility and not a service that you buy from from someone or from a, from a political party. And we really lack the structures to do that. We do have a few. We we do see that uh, political parties, at least the ones compromise-seeking political parties, 
tend to lose members, whereas the uh, extremist ones tend to gain support because they find compromises much too hard, apparently. And I also find that building compromise, kind of find, finding good solutions where it's not quite obvious initially what the solution is as a shared activity. I'm convinced there are lots of people who are interested in doing it, but there is no institutional framework to do it. And that's something that the European Union European Union needs to build quite urgently because even after they've built it, after they've gained experience and gone through iterations of how do you need to structure something like that, how do you need to balance it, uh, how do you kind of make sure that seemingly fringe opinions have a chance to make it into the mainstream and at the same time ensure that fringe opinions don't kind of take take over everything and, and destroy kind of any majority opinion. So, so there are lots of things that need to be need to be tried out in a way and optimized. So that's something that has to start very, very quickly, so that over the course of the next few years, we we build a community, let's put it that way, a, a community of European citizens who are interested in shaping the, the, the future of the union, who are interested in shifting it into and if a better way, whether, whether that's, that's more resilience, whether it's um, more prosperity, whether it's stronger peace or we, 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 whatever the priorities are. But uh, th- those structures need to be built because otherwise I mean, the, the counter vision is that the, we lose the digital space as a, as, a, as a space for discourse and as a space for seeking solutions. And that would, that would be a dangerous, um, dangerous path to go down you have uh, very eloquently described the the structure of the possible priorities and often they go pretty much against each other right because uh, it is difficult to reach both you know transfer internal market but also prosperous and and competitive internal market it is difficult to protect workers and have competitive companies i'm not saying it's impossible but it's difficult It is difficult to be competitive in the digital agenda, but also be the role model in regulation and and sort of restraining the big tech companies and so on and so on. What would be your priority? I mean, if I may ask so. I think, and I'm I'm, I'm sort of deliberately evading your question a little bit. I think the priority has to be to have a balance. So for example, workers' rights versus competitiveness of, of uh, companies, if they're even work against, but maybe to some extent they do, at least in the, in the short term. So to have a balance and also to have a mechanism to renegotiate the balance again and again. So as much as I'm annoyed by strikes, they serve a certain purpose and uh, the balance has to be, okay, how, how do you make sure that the, the, the balance of power between employers and trade union is such that both sides are forced to come to a constructive solution with, with an, an acceptable level of societal impact and, and annoyance, let's be that way. And to me, and that's why I'm kind of evading or deliberately evading the question. That, that no, I, I don't blame you. I don't blame you. <laughs> for, re, re, uh, kind of for readjusting that balance 
year after year. That, that's that's the important thing. Right. right. No, as I say, I don't blame you because this is extremely tough question, probably impossible to answer. So I totally understand that that perhaps the right procedural um, mechanism or improving the procedural and and, and deliberate the, the mechanism of deliberation uh, is 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 very is crucial. So so thank you for that. Okay, I'm going to merge my last two questions. The first one is, what are the greatest challenges? that you're facing now in, in your line of work. So in Czech, there's this fantastic word that is ch- both challenge and opportunity at the same time. What is what is the Czech word, Odessa? Vizva. Uh, Vizva, okay. It's kind of like a challenge, but not in a negative sense. It's oh, kind of like okay. a challenge is like a, in like a sports sense. And the second question, which you can merge with the first one, what are the questions or what is the question that you would like to be asked that people don't ask you? Okay, right. Let's start. Let's start with the with the um, with the, with the uh, challenge first. I would say the most interesting challenge is to build an infrastructure of trust in the digital space. So to build the infrastructure, the protocols, the concepts that govern how do I decide how much I want to trust some other entity in the digital space, be it a person, be it, be it an uh, organization. And how can I map the ways in which we as humans have learned to gauge whether we want to trust another people, uh, another person from the offline world into the um, digital space? How can I avoid being manipulated by entities, in particular AI-generated entities that just pretend to be people? How would you specify that in your own in practice of your work? So what does that mean in terms of what do you have to do in the next 40 days to uh, tackle the challenge? Well, I would, I would be happy if, if it uh, was only going to take 40 days, but the biggest task is to set up an infrastructure of privacy protecting pseudonyms. So a way for everyone to be online, protecting their real identity, um, not, not, not just because they think a platform takes care of their data and doesn't sell it, but protecting it more fundamentally, cryptographically, and uh, at the same time, making sure that I know, yeah, I'm talking to a real person and that person only has got one account you know, on a given platform or, or, or forum. That's that's the very, very concrete incarnation that we're trying to, to build. I know we talked about this a little bit in our previous podcast, but how difficult would, it sounds extremely difficult. It reminds me of how we spoke to someone uh, doing hybrid quantum computing and they were talking about quantum encrypting and, and decrypting and how we need to protect all of the internet against possible you know, quantum attacks, which it's like going through a haystack and needing to take out every single piece of hay and encrypt it, let's say. So what you're saying sounds a little bit similar in difficulty, but Maybe uh, in not, practice, well, it's not. No, it's a, the, the, the difficult is not technology because we do have the technology, we do have the cryptography to do it. Uh, the difficulty uh, is to some extent uh, institutional. I believe that government should not run such a system, but government should promote it and make sure that we can emerge and that you have a range of trust anchors available. And the related, or the, the second challenge is user acceptance to get people to maybe take an extra baby step to, to interact like that in the digital space. It hasn't got to be, everyone hasn't got to be all the time, but there has to be some, well, I'm not even sure whether critical mass is the right word, but, but some, some, some percentage of people who, who value this and, and to decide to take that extra effort. 
Okay. Um, and the, and the, the question? question? And the question I want to be asked is, what resources do you need and how can I give them to you? Nice. <laughs> I like that question. Okay. I, I, yeah, I'll remember that one. <laughs> Very good. Well, we do, we do, we do have, a, have a strange situation in that um, it's not like we don't have money sloshing around. We, we, we do have, even in Europe, maybe more so in the US, but even in Europe, we do have people who you've got their heart in the right place. That's what we do, how you would put it in German. And you, you share the agenda, who got rich through some, some sort of business activity in the past, but it's very, very hard to connect both. It's, it's hard mm -hmm. to connect the good ideas with, with people funding them. And what I would like to see in Europe is that we have uh, philanthropy for issues such as digital trust in the same way as uh, Bill Gates puts his brains into sanitation in, in developing yeah. countries. Yeah, yeah. Um, or the Henry Ford Foundation puts their, their resources into social justice issues. And we currently do not have any major philanthropic entity in Europe that, that takes a lead on that. And that I think that, that, is, that is a big, um, big gap. And then, of course, you could ask the more fundamental question whether it really should fall to rich old people to uh, fund important societal change, uh, whether, whether something maybe went wrong taxation system prior to that but uh, that's that's a whole different that's a whole different discussion well we'll, we'll um, take what we can get until yeah. everything is everything is great yeah that, that, that's that, exactly that, that's a pragmatic approach <laughs> <laughs> thank you for listening the global arena research institute specializes in high-level research and analysis using big data and ai in our podcasts we bring you experts from various fields for fascinating and useful discussions until next time, have a great day.